Looking at our world from a theological perspective, this is the Theology Central Podcast, making Theology Central. Good afternoon, everyone. It is Wednesday, April the 20th, 2022. It is currently 3.38 p.m. Central Time, and I'm coming to you live two stories above a street in Abilene, Texas. Again, yesterday we were debating exactly how I should do my new intro. Before it was, welcome everyone, I'm coming to you live from the empty sanctuary of Victory Baptist Church located in the middle of nowhere, Texas. Now I'm going to tell you that I'm coming to you live two stories above a street in Abilene, Texas. That's where I'm coming to you live from and a second story bedroom here in my home in Abilene, Texas. And I thank you so much for tuning in. You probably don't care where I'm coming to you live from, but I do kind of like to paint that picture a little bit so that you get kind of an idea, all right? Second story bedroom, a table, laptop, microphone, and wherever you may be, whenever you may listen, however you may listen, thank you so much for tuning in. Hopefully all of our live broadcast is a constant source of challenge, information, and hopefully spiritual blessing. That's what we attempt to do. And in this particular case, this is going to be very important because we're going to be dealing with a very well-known text of Scripture. You know this text of Scripture. You've heard countless sermons on it, and I'm going to probably challenge most of the interpretations you have heard when it comes to this passage of Scripture, all right? We're going to be talking about the Sermon on the Mount, We're going to be talking about the Sermon on the Mount. Now, if you have a Bible and you open it up to the Gospel of Matthew, if you go to the Gospel of Matthew, you will notice these words starting in chapter uh, 5, Matthew chapter 5, verse 1, Matthew chapter 5, verse 1, and seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain, and when he was set, his disciples came unto him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying. So Jesus goes up into a mountain, Sermon on the Mount. He begins to teach them, and if you'll notice carefully, that teaching starts in Matthew chapter 5, verse 2, after he opens his mouth, and he teaches them. I guess the actual teaching begins in verse 3, goes all through chapter 5, all through chapter 6, And all through chapter 7, he really stops teaching in chapter 7, verse 27, and that is known as the Sermon on the Mount. It is often quoted from, many cases, the the verses being quoted are taken out of the context of the sermon and are just used for whatever purpose the the person quoting them wants to use them, which is problematic. But when it comes to the sermon as a whole, chapter 5, chapter 6, and chapter 7, I think that there's a problem with the way many pastors handle it, how they interpret it, and how they apply it. Now, if you look carefully, and I think on the Church One app, oh, I don't know if I have, have turned it into an actual uh, series. I will have to look. If so, I will organize it so that there, all of the messages will be grouped together in a series. We'll call it Sermon on the Mount because we, we I think about a year ago, we did a pretty extensive study on the Sermon on the Mount, and what we did is we took a sermons that were preached uh, at a church in Council Bluffs, Iowa. We listened to those sermons just to see kind of a general way in which people handle the Sermon on the Mount, and 
we demonstrated that the church wasn't doing anything crazy. It, it was really right there in, in, in mainstream evangelicalism and how they handle the text. It's how most churches handle it. And most Christians sit in the pew and for some weird reason, they never go, wait a minute, wait a minute. If you're saying what I think you're saying, then none of, no, nobody is saved. There, there's no one here saved. But Christians, for some reason, don't ever stop to think, wait a minute, I don't, I don't, that, there's no way you can be saying that. They just accept it, say amen, because they want to get out by noon and I guess, you know, get to the buffet before some other church. I don't know. I don't know why Christians don't catch on, but it is a problem. Now, why are we talking about the Sermon, uh, uh, the sermon on the Mount, if I can speak correctly? Why are we talking about the Sermon on the Mount again if I've already done a series on it? Because of an email. Because of an email. I know I don't have my email sound effects. Do I have my email sound effects? Do Here we go. My, I, because of an email. All right. Yes, that's that's the sound effect for email. Because, you know, I guess way back in the day, you would have printed the email out and then brought it to the pulpit with you. But now, obviously, we don't print out our emails. I got it right here on my iPad. But there you go. So I got an email. And here's the email I received. I received this at... Um, See, was this yesterday or was it earlier today? It may have been earlier today. I think I received this at 105, yes, 105 p.m. today. I received an email and I'm just going to read directly from this. Hang on, let me go back. Um, I think I just accidentally deleted said email. So let me go to the trash can. Yeah, here we go. All right, 105, here we go. Um, this is from G. G3 Ministries. G3 Ministries. You may be familiar with that name, G3 Ministries. We'll talk a little bit about the ministry itself. G3 Ministries from G3 Press. Now, as soon as you look under it, they they have this banner that says G3 Press, and right under it, you see one thing that says Bible study, the Sermon on the Mount, and then right next to that, facing the cross, a homeschool Morning Time and Family Worship Guide for Holy Week. All right, so the Sermon on the Mount, Facing the Cross, a Homeschool Morning Time and Family Worship Guide for Holy Week. This is some content that they're making available today. In fact, this is what it says underneath this, all right? Basically, they're giving free curriculum for small groups, Sunday school classes, homeschooling, and more. G3 Ministries is committed to providing free resources to help encourage, equip, and educate God's people for His glory. Towards that end, we are regularly producing free, downloadable teaching curriculum that you can use in a Sunday school class, small group, homeschooling, or other setting. Download free. So I clicked on the download free. Of course, they made me give me, uh, which was weird. They asked for my email address. Well, you're the one who sent it to me, so you already have my email address. Okay, but all right. So I gave them my email address, and then I downloaded Bible study, the Sermon on the Mount, Ryan Bush. I don't have any clue who Ryan Bush is, but it's from G3 Ministries. We're going to consider what they sent me, because at the very beginning in their introduction, they lay down basically how you are to interpret the Sermon on the Mount, which I think is very problematic, but we'll talk about it in a minute. Here's some information about G3 Ministries. 
uh, because someone said that they did not know anything about G3 Ministries. Let me see if I can get you everything. If you go to g3min.org, G, the number three, M as in Mary, I as in India, N as in Nancy, g3min.org, g3min.org. I believe they have the G3 app as well if you would like to download it. Here's when you go to the about section, here's what we read. History. From the very beginning, G3 had a goal of helping local churches. One of the ways we determined to do this was to invest in pastors. So let's start right here. Here's a ministry, and what they wanted to do was to help local churches. And they were going to do this by investing in pastors. Now, a certain individual with G3 Ministries had a vision to start a theology conference that would focus on God's word as opposed to the pragmatism and techniques that are so often the focus of evangelical conferences. So here's what they, we are going to invest in pastors. We're going to help the local church and we're going to do this by, drum roll please, a conference. Dun, 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 dun. That's the way we, that's the way we fix everything in, in evangelical Christianity. We need a conference. So let's get some celebrity pastors. Let's charge people a hundred dollars plus to get in. And we're going to help local churches and help pastors, right? I guess we're going to only help the pastors who can afford to go. We're only going to be able to help the churches that have the money to, to pay for their pastors to get to the conference, right? Because many pastors of small churches, I don't know if you know this, they don't have the money. Uh, in many cases, they don't even have the ability to go to a conference because, you see, a lot of pastors for small churches who may actually really need help, they're bivocational. So they're working Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Oh, and they're working Saturday and so, oh, in fact, they're working seven days a week because they're a bivocational pastor and a pastor, which is a full-time job. So basically they end up with two full-time jobs. They're barely, in many cases, the churches they're pastoring barely has the money to even pay them or support them, clearly cannot support them full-time. So those pastors in many cases, A, can't afford to just stop going to their job that's helping support them to go run off to a conference, pay for the travel, and oh, by the way, pay to get into the conference. Yeah. So in many cases, no, I guess you only want to help the pastors of large churches who can afford to go to the conference. Yeah. You, you can, you, I have, you know, I have major problems about conferences where people have to pay to get in to hear the word of God taught. And the people who create these conferences always say, always say that we're here to help you. We're here to help you for the low, low price of $119. We're here to help you for the low, low price of $399, whatever the case, but we're here to help you. I want you to know I'm here to help you, but you got to give me some money, right? Okay. Again, I just don't think charging people to hear the word of God preached is, I, I just, I, I, I've got problems with it. I, I'm going, I know a lot of people are going to get mad at me, but that's okay. So they wanted to start a new evangelical conference because it's got to be better than the other evangelical conferences because the other evangelical conferences had pragmatism and we need a different. So we're, we're going to have a, we're going to use the same concept of a conference. We're just going to make our conference better than their conferences. And 2013, our first G3 conference was held 
in Georgia, uh, on the campus of Pray Mill Baptist Church. Now, I wonder if the conference happened, like, did you pay to get inside the sanctuary of the church? Did people have to pay money to get inside a church to hear the word of God preached? Or the campus of this church, did they have a a different building? It would be interesting to know where it was actually held, but that's okay. Um, The G3 has grown into one of the largest evangelical conferences in the United States. G3 stands for gospel, grace, and glory. Gospel, grace, and glory is what G3 stands for. Now they're one of the largest conferences. All right, so they... I mean, they had a vision, they were going to help people, and they were going to do so via conference, and now they've turned into, uh, as they said, one of the largest evangelical uh, conferences in the United States. The G3 conference, as an annual event, grew from 750 people to 5,600 from 2013 to 2020. Since then, we have transitioned into a 501c3 organization under the name of G3 Ministries. So, hey, we're, so now they turn into a parachurch ministry in a roundabout way. Now they're their own ministry. They have a 501c3. Of course, we gotta, we got we to make sure we have all of our financials, you know, set up. Oh, and by the way, we still charge people to get into our conferences, right? Yeah, you can tell that I have, I have, this is just to me the whole conference industrial complex that, that is so prevalent that, I, that we've spoken of, I've spoken of in many podcasts. Our purpose is to educate, encourage, and equip. So they want to educate, encourage, and equip local churches with sound biblical theology for the glory of God. So here they are, almost like we're going to be a parachurch organization because they have their own 501c3 status. So they're a parachurch ministry who wants to help the church <laughs> by encouraging and equipping and educating the church. But I thought it was, I thought it was the church. I thought it was the church's job to educate, encourage, and equip. But I guess the church has to be encouraged, equipped as well. Someone said, good afternoon. Thank you for all you do. Well, thank you for listening. That's that's very important, and I really appreciate it. So, so they're going to go equip the churches. Now, again, they're going to educate, encourage, and equip the church, again, for the low, low price of, I think, I think early bird registration is like $119 for one of their conferences. I think that's the early bird. I don't know what. I don't know if you register late what what the cost is, but I think it's at least $119. It may have been cheaper in the past. Today, we offer local churches more than a yearly event. We provide resources and forms of online articles. Well, that is cool. If you're not charging for the online articles, I, I, I mean that. I'm not seeing that in a sarcastic way. Podcast, if you're not charging people for the podcast, that's wonderful. Expository preaching workshops. Be interesting to know if they're charging for those workshops. Biblical work, uh, worship workshops and local church-based curriculum for Sunday school and small groups. While we still be, well, while we will still be offering events such as our large national conference and regional conferences, study cruises, and church history tours, we're very excited about offering resources to local churches and individual Christians. This is just a little about a bit about our history. And uh, with a look to our future. Now, if I go here, if I go to workshops, let's go to their workshops. Um, well, currently nothing is showing up uh, for their workshops. So let's go to regional conferences. If we go to regional conferences, um, 
Let's see here. This was in uh, September the 15th through the 17th, 2022. Here's the people who will be speaking. And, oh, $219. $219 so that I can uh, I can go to a conference telling me the Bible is sufficient. Hey, the Bible is sufficient, and I need to spend $219 to get into a conference to tell me the Bible is sufficient. But if the Bible is sufficient, why do I need to pay $219 to get into a conference for someone to tell me it is sufficient? Maybe, maybe. Okay, here's an overview. Well, I'm not going to go through everything about this conference, but just so that you know, it's $219 per person. Per person. So if I was to take one other person, let's see here, it would be $438 so that, oh, that I could go to a church. Emmanuel Baptist Church is where it's occurring. So so if if me and one other person went, it would be $438 for us to get inside a church building to attend a conference to tell me the Bible is sufficient. Well, if the Bible is sufficient, I probably don't need the conference, do I? I mean, look, this has to be discussed. Oh, okay, good. Yes. Uh, someone just said it looks like the conference or at least the national ones get uploaded to YouTube. Yes. Some of the things they do upload to YouTube, I don't know how soon after, which is wonderful, which is great. Right. And they have an app, which I think you get a lot of the archives as well. I don't think you have to pay in fact, let me see here. I don't have the, let me go to, I'm going to go to the Apple App Store really quick. Got a lot of people participating this afternoon. That's good. All right. Um, a lot of times this time, there's not too many people listening live. All right. Let's see. Here. I'm going to download the app really quick. All right. Um, I'm going to open it. All right. The G3 app, allow. Okay. Well, there's the register for the, the, the uh, Just Thinking About the Bible, a Conference on Biblical Sufficiency, um, articles, conference archives, yeah, salvation, election, yeah, okay, yes, the app gives you lots of free content, which is very, 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 very good. That is awesome. Looks like a very nice app, and by all means, listen, I want to make it very clear, okay, I want to make, make sure no one misunderstands me. Look, I'm always going to condemn the conference industrial complex. I just, I'm opposed to it. I know that everyone thinks I'm weird for that. I just cannot wrap my mind around people paying 200 and something dollars to get into a conference to hear people preach that's being held inside a church. Just all of it just seems fleshly, worldly. It just seems so ungodly. It just seems like someone needs to go in by the name of Jesus with a whip and drive some people out of the church because you're turning it into a place of merchandise and the thing being sold is the preaching of God's word. So I want to make it very clear. I'm, I'm, I'm not a fan of that. However, there's many ministries that do that, that I still listen and benefit from their content. You may actually benefit greatly from the preaching of those conferences. So by no means am I saying don't, you know, don't listen and don't use any material that comes from a ministry that goes to conferences. I would never say that. I'm just saying that I, someone has to speak out against that mindset because it's a business and it stops being ministry. When you charge people for ministry, I don't know if that's ministry. 
It would be like me having someone stand at the front door of my church the next time we have an in-person service and they come walking up and say, that'll be $10 to get in. People would say that's the most hideous, evil thing they've ever heard of. But then they will stand out in front of a church, pay $200 to get in for a conference. So what makes it that I can't charge $10 for people to get into my building, but another another church can charge people $200 to get into that building? You know the difference? There's no celebrity preaching in my building, and there's a celebrity preaching in other people's building, so therefore you can charge the money. That's where I have a problem. By all means, download the G3 app. Use, listen to every sermon on there. Use, read every blog article. Use everything. Look, use their curriculum. I am by no means condemning everything. I'm condemning the the, the conference idea. I just think it's crazy. Hold a conference. Let people in for free. People have to pre-register. Once all the spots are taken, you stop registration, you get everyone in, and then you can take an offering. And those who can can, uh, give will give, and those who can't will, will not. There you go. And churches, all of those pastors who come, all of those celebrity pastors and from celebrity ministries, those ministries pay for their pastor, for their whoever, their preacher, to go to the conference so that they can minister to other people. In other words, if, let's say, John MacArthur goes to another conference, Grace Community Church pays for him to go there as an extension of their ministry. So they they pay his travel, hotel, food, he goes, and it's a part of the ministry of Grace Community Church. And so the only money you would need to, to raise is to, well, I get, well, actually, you know what? If you're speaking in a church, the church shouldn't be charging you usage of the building. So really, I mean, there would be very limited things you would have to use the money for, right? But that, that's, that's neither here nor there. But G3 Ministries, that's a little bit about them. So now let's go to the thing I downloaded today, all right? That, that took 22 minutes to talk about all of that, but that's okay. So here we go. All right, I'm getting notifications from MLB, from Major League Baseball, because someone just hit a 438-foot home run, okay? Not that you care, but that's what that sound was on my iPad. All right, here we go. So I downloaded the Bible study, the Sermon on the Mount. Now, it's absolutely awesome that they're allowing people to download a free Bible study today. That is awesome. That is great. I do, I do admire that. That's wonderful, right? And here we go. The table of the contents. Uh, it, they have lesson one, which is Matthew 5, 1 through 12. Lesson two, Matthew 5, 13 through 37. Lesson three, Matthew 5, 38 through 48. Lesson four, Matthew 6. You get the idea. There's a total of nine lessons. All right. Then it has from the author. And it says, a dear teacher. And uh, basically it says, I commend you for your commitment to teaching the word of God and the people of God for the good of their souls and the glory of God. May the Lord give you grace, wisdom as you open the scriptures and lead the sheep to green pastures and still waters. I wrote this study of the Sermon on the Mount specifically for small groups, though it could certainly be adapted to fit other needs. I believe it would be best for the teacher to use the comments, outlines, and discussion questions in these lessons as a way to carefully prepare the lesson beforehand. During the Bible study, you may want to have these notes on hand, but they're not intended for group participants. While I I did attempt to include and expound upon important theological concepts that arise in the text, the study is meant for church 
for church members of all maturity levels and ages. Adapt these lessons to fit the needs of those in your class. May the Lord give you grace, wisdom as you teach his word. All right, and that's from the author. All right, now, immediately, uh, then right after, after that, it has lesson one, Matthew 5, 1 through 12, and it quotes verses, well, it quotes verses 1 through 11. Oh, no, there's 12. Okay, it quotes verses 1 through 12. All right, so there they have it. Then they said overview. Now, here we go. All right, let's stop right here. Here we go. Think he caps on. All right, I know some of you are just going to uh, focus on the fact that I am against the uh, conference culture. Please don't focus on that. I want to focus on how do they handle the Sermon on the Mount. All right, are you ready? Here we go. Overview. Jesus' conception of what it means to be blessed is an affront to our natural inclinations. In this passage, Jesus explains that his followers are blessed no matter their present reality because of the sure future hope that is stored up for them and by God through Christ. Okay, that 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 sounds good. All right, so... They first, what they're going to say is the, is the very first section of the Sermon on the Mount, as you know, are the Beatitudes. And so they're saying that Jesus is going to give us a conception of what it means to be blessed that's radically different, uh, and, and that's actually an affront to our natural uh, uh, inclinations. No, that's a very good point. Uh, Jesus is going to explain that his followers are blessed no matter their present reality because of the sure future hope that is stored up for them in and by God through Christ. So he's going to give us an idea of blessing that goes against our natural uh, natural inclination and that he's going to demonstrate that we are blessed in God through Christ no matter our present reality. All right, that, that all sounds very good and very theologically sound, right? No problem. Then they have an outline. Be aware, be conformed, be encouraged. Now, I don't know if that's an outline... I'm assuming that's an outline just of Matthew 5, 1 through 12, all right? They don't, they don't break down which verses that fits. That's kind of a weird way to do an outline. You look like, be aware would be Matthew 5, verses 1 or verses 2 through what, but they don't do that. All right, that's interesting, okay? Theological theme. All right, here we go. Theological theme. The Beatitude, or the Beatitudes, plural, I should say. The Beatitudes hinge upon the theological concepts of justification, sanctification, and perseverance. Only those who have been justified can be in a state of blessedness. I'll stop right there. I I completely agree with it. I cannot be in a state of blessedness if I have not been justified. Now, let's remind, remember, I am justified because of an imputed righteousness, not because of a practical righteousness, not because of an infused righteousness, because of an imputed righteousness, right? This this is very important. So just let's see where they go with this, all right? Those who are justified are sanctified, which is why they are humble, repentant, meek, righteous, merciful, and pure. Stop right here. Now, this is where I start having a little bit of a problem. He just says those who are justified are, are sanctified. 
This is why those who are justified are people who are humble, repentant, meek, righteous, merciful, and pure. Now, I'm going to stop right here and have a major issue. First of all, I know all kinds of people who are Christians who are not humble, repentant, meek, righteous, merciful, and pure, and you're listening to one. I am definitely not those things in any definitive way. I try to be those things. I long to be those things. I want to be those things. But you know what? A lot of times when I want to be humble, I find myself being prideful. Sometimes even when I think I'm being humble, I'm the first one to recognize that I think I'm being humble, which actually demonstrates that my humility is becoming a source of my pride. I want to be repentant, but a lot of times deep in my heart, I still want to do what I know I shouldn't. And I, I try to be meek, but a lot of times I rise up and, yeah, and the, ops, the ops opposite of meekness. I want to be righteous, but I know that I have a sinful nature and unrighteousness is constantly in my thinking and my actions and in my desires. I want to be merciful, but sometimes I want revenge. Pure? I am definitely not pure because I have a corrupt nature. So when you say that someone is justified, they're sanctified, therefore they are going to, and he says, they are this. I am not that practically. I do know this. First of all, because I am justified by an imputed righteousness. Now I know this. Christ is perfect and his perfect obedience and righteousness is imputed to me. So in my position before God, I am humble, meek, righteous, pure, godly, but not in practice. So are they referring to what I am positionally or are they referring to what we are practically? Because where they seem to be going here is that the Sermon on the Mount basically is what proves if you are a Christian. If you if you obey the Sermon on the Mount, you are a Christian. If you do not obey the Sermon on the Mount, you're not a Christian. Now, immediately, some people are going to push back, go, but, 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 but. No one is saying you have to obey it perfectly. Well, wait a minute. So you're saying an imperfect obedience to the Sermon on the Mount would still be sufficient to prove that I am a recipient of an imputed righteousness. How can my imperfect obedience to the Sermon on the Mount prove that I have that I have received an imputed righteousness? Because by definition, the imputed righteousness does not change me because we reject the idea of an infused righteousness, which is Catholicism. So this seems to be going in the direction, hey, how do you know you're justified? Do you follow the Sermon on the Mount? Well, if that's the criteria, no one's justified. Let's see if if I'm going in the right direction or if I'm wrong. Finally, the follower of Christ looks to a secure future hope because they will endure because God the Father will not lose any of his own. Let's continue. Christ's connection. These theological concepts are founded and rooted in Jesus' finished work on the cross. There is no justification, sanctification, or perseverance without our Savior and mediator, Jesus Christ. Well, amen to that. We definitely can agree with that. Missions application. The most loving, kind, 
And compassionate actions that a Christian can show towards someone is both praying that God would open their hearts to the gospel and then opening their mouth and their hearing and humbly explaining the gospel message to them. A person cannot be truly blessed unless they are in Christ. Neither can they look towards a secure future apart from the saving work of Christ through their hearts. All right. So in other words, this should make us want to go present the gospel. It's just weird. A passage that supposedly is there to prove whether I'm actually saved is supposed to somehow motivate me to go tell others about being saved. I don't know how it's going to motivate me to go tell others about being saved because I'm going to have to be constantly reading the Sermon on the Mount to figure out if I'm actually saved. Because I'll never know if I'm actually saved because I guess the only way I'm going to ever know that I'm actually saved is when I get to the end of the life and find out if I pass the test of the Sermon on the Mount. So, I mean, I don't, I don't know how that's supposed to encourage evangelism. It seems like it would encourage me never to leave my house and uh, never move because I would be afraid of not passing the test. Let's see if I'm on the right track here. Introduction. Superstars want the ball when the clock is running out and someone has to score. When the players huddle up to receive instructions from the coach, everyone knows who the ball is going to. The pressure is there. The task seems impossible. And the hopes of winning seem slim. Yet, the person wants the ball. They want to take the shot. They are relaxed and focused. They are confident. Why? Because they believe in their ability trust in their training, and have confidence in their skill. They are calm under fire because they believe that they believe that the thing in which they have confidence themselves is greater than the challenge that lies ahead. Followers of Christ have an even greater confidence, but it isn't because they are superstars and can rely on anything within themselves. Christians have peace, joy, and hope in the midst of the fierce, fierce storms of life, because they are moored to an unshakable anchor. Jesus Christ lived a perfect life in their place and then died a sinner's death in their place. Now he intercedes from before God the Father. Those that are in Christ rest in the grace, mercy, power, and promises of their Savior. They know that he will not fail or falter. Now that all sounds good. I have confidence because Christ did everything for me. He obeyed. He died. So my confidence, my hope is in Christ. That sounds so good. Amen, 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 amen. But, but I just feel like that, 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 that's like, hey, look, it's all because of Christ. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, a slap's getting ready to happen. And they're, they're going to just take away all of that grace and all of that confidence, and all of that peace, and all of that joy, and all of that ability to rest. I have a feeling something's going to come. Maybe I'm wrong. Here we go. Jesus' words in Matthew 5, 1 through 12 are meant to remind Christians that their hope isn't in themselves, but in what their great God has done and will do. Now, that sounds good as well. All right. You're right. Matthew 5 gives me hope and what Christ has done, because I will argue that Matthew 5, the blessed person, is Jesus Christ, and in him I have all spiritual blessings. But but I digress. Let's see where they're going to go. It sounds like in some ways they're going the same direction I'm going. But there's already been hints here that they're approaching this, that this somehow is a test. Let's see which view 
arises to the forefront and becomes the dominant view before this. Because right now it seems like they're kind of going in and out here. And this is what happens in the evangelical world. It's like, it's grace-based. And then all of a sudden it slides over to, well, wait, that sounds like it's works-based. No, it's grace-based. And well, it goes back and forth. Let's see where this ends up. The Beatitudes introduce Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is the longest continual teaching of Christ recorded in the Gospels. The Beatitudes are short statements that summarizes the essence of the sermon. The essence is this. Those who are in Christ are characterized by a state of blessedness in the fallen world, a life that is humbly submitted to God's word and a confident hope of eternal life with God. So they're kind of going back the other direction now, right? So the, so the Beatitudes, they demonstrate that for you or for me, if you're a Christian, that you are characterized by a state of blessedness, that you, you are constantly in a state of blessedness, um, that you, have, that you live a life that is humbly submitted to God's word, and that you have a confident hope of eternal life. Let's, let's see if they flesh this out any, any bit, uh, uh, in any way, shape, or form. All right, here we go. Next paragraph. One pitfall that we must be careful, or let me read this again. One pitfall that we must be careful not to tumble into while reading the Sermon on the Mount is to see Jesus' words from a gospel of works framework. Okay, that sounds good. I agree. We got to be very careful not to turn this into a gospel of works. Amen. Let's see how they're going to prevent us from tumbling into that, how we're going to avoid that pitfall. They continue. We naturally tend to understand the world in terms of merit, self-reliance, and achievement. The gospel of work says that if I will discipline myself and do what I ought to do, then it will all go well with me. God, God will approve of me and I will go to heaven one day. But that point of view is dead wrong. It's a false gospel. It isn't the gospel of Jesus, though it very much is the message of every other religious system in the world. So they're like, okay, we can't look at this as a works-based thing. This can't, we can't look at the Sermon on the Mount saying you have to do this in order to be saved. That sounds so good, right? So that would that may lower your defenses. You'd be like, well, you know what? This sounds all grace-based. This sounds so, this sounds wonderful. Let's do they stay there? Let, let's see if they stay there. So far, it sounds there's parts of this that sound great, and there's other parts of this that seem to be setting off some alarm signals. Let's see where they're going to end up here. In the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus directly addressed his disciples. He described what a life devoted to him looks like. Humble, meek, peaceable, pure. Right? Let, let, let's just go along with this argument. Okay, you're right. Uh, if, my, if my life is truly devoted to him, then it's going to be a life that demonstrates humility, meekness, peaceable and pure. Let's, let's say that is true. Now, what happens if I don't demonstrate those things? Am I just demonstrating that my life is not completely devoted to him? Are you getting ready to tell me that demonstrates that I was never saved? Now, the minute you say that proves I was never saved, you've just now turned the Sermon, of the Mount, uh, the Sermon on the Mount into, guess what? I have to do this in order to be saved because if I don't do this, I was never saved 
And I don't care how you try to parse the words. I don't care how you try to get around it. You've created a gospel of works. Hey, you can say, well, no, 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 no. You don't have to do this to be saved. But if you are saved, you will do this. Meaning if I don't do this, I was never saved. So I have to do this in order to prove that I was saved. So therefore I have to do it, right? I mean, you, you can try to run around that hamster wheel all day, but you're just going to run in circles. Is that where they're going to go? Maybe not. Maybe not. Maybe they're going to they're going to explain here. Here we go. Nor did he say that these things qualify them for eternal life. Now, that's good. He says, so Jesus didn't say these things qualify you for eternal life. All right. So once again, they seem to be going back to the grace kind of way. All right. Let's see. Let's see. Let's see. Where, Where are they going to end up? They seeming to kind of go. All right. It's like. It's almost like you're standing on in a, in a middle of the room. And to the left, it says grace. And to the right, it says works. And they keep kind of going a couple of steps towards the works direction and then a couple of directions towards the grace direction. Where, how are they going to handle the Sermon on the Mount? Let, let's see here. Rather, Jesus simply said that those who exhibit these qualities will receive eternal life. Did you hear that? Jesus simply said that those who exhibit those qualities in the Sermon on the Mount will receive eternal life. Now, they just said, Jesus didn't say you have to do this to have eternal life, but he just, but they want, then they turn around and say, but if you exhibit these qualities, then you receive eternal life. You don't have to do it to get eternal life, but you have to exhibit these qualities in order to well, and their exact words, well, to receive eternal life. <laughs> All right, so I'm trying to, so I don't have to do this to get eternal life, but if I have eternal life, then I will do this, which demonstrates that I have received eternal life. So the proof that I've received eternal life is that I demonstrate all of the qualities in the Sermon on the Mount. If I don't demonstrate those qualities, then I never got eternal life. Now, right here, you start seeing where there's a problem. Wait a minute. I thought my justification was based off an imputed righteousness. You're saying now, if I received an imputed righteousness, I have to demonstrate it in by demonstrating the qualities on the Sermon on the Mount. And if I don't demonstrate the qualities of the Sermon on the Mount, then I never received an imputed righteousness. Well, that would immediately make it not an imputed righteousness, would make it an infused righteousness that I have to cooperate with and demonstrate these qualities. And if I don't demonstrate these qualities, then I never receive that infused righteousness that should change me, which is basic. Well, I'm just literally using the same verbiage of Roman Catholicism. Let's see if they clean this up anymore. All right, here we go. Jesus simply said that those who exhibit those qualities will receive eternal life, not as a result of exhibiting those qualities, but because of their position in Christ. All right, now, right, if I exhibit the qualities, I get eternal life, but I get eternal life because of my position. But because of my position, I will exhibit exhibit these qualities. So in other words, if I don't exhibit these qualities, I'm demonstrating that I do not have a position in Christ. In other words, if I have a position in Christ, 
I will demonstrate that by these qualities, meaning that my my salvation involves obviously some kind of an infused righteousness, which will produce said qualities. Yeah, this, this okay, let, let's see if they, do they, do they make it any more clear? It isn't a cause and effect relationship, but simply a correlation. This is an incredibly important distinction. If we don't get this, then we will badly misunderstand and misapply what Jesus said in the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount as, as a whole. Now, here, here's what they have to say, right? To make sure we understand this. Think of it this way. In the Beatitudes, Jesus addressed born-again believers. They will have those qualities to assure them of and comfort them with their future hope of eternal life with God. In other words, if you are a believer, you will have these qualities. And that's where your assurance comes from. How can you be assured of eternal life? You follow the Sermon on the Mount. You don't follow the Sermon on the Mount, you have no assurance of salvation, meaning that your assurance of salvation is not found in the finished work of Jesus Christ. It is finished. It is not found in the imputed righteousness where God declares you to be righteous by faith alone. No, no, no. Your assurance is not what Christ did. Your assurance is found in what you are doing, meaning that your assurance can never be that you can't ever be that confidence in your assurance because today you may be demonstrating the, the uh, Sermon on the Mount. You may be exhibiting the qualities of the Sermon on the Mount, but next month, maybe you're not. So your, your assurance can only be viewed day by day as you demonstrate the qualities of the Sermon on the Mount. And the only way you're going to really know if you're saved is when you get to the end of your life and you look back and go, did my life demonstrate the qualities of the Sermon on the Mount? If it did... I'm saved. If it didn't, then I was never saved. Meaning you can never have any assurance. That's completely different than going, how do I know I'm saved? Because of the finished work of Jesus Christ. Because his righteousness was imputed to my account by faith alone. My security is in Christ. All the things that the Sermon on the Mount calls for, Jesus Christ did, accomplished, his passive and active obedience is imputed to me. So in this way, everything on the Sermon on the Mount may prove that I'm saved. And guess what? It's all mine by faith. Christ accomplished all of that. But if you're honest with the Sermon on the Mount, let's just start with the Beatitudes. We won't even get into the whole chapter. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, if we make this a test, how do you know you're saved? Are you poor in spirit? What does that look like? Is that a one-time thing or is that a continuing attitude? Blessed are they that mourn for they shall be comforted. Mourn. In other words, a constant brokenness over your sin. Are you sure you're broken enough over your sin? Blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. Are you, do you constantly demonstrate a spirit of meekness? Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Do you truly hunger and thirst after righteousness? Truly hunger and thirst after it. Now, come on, be honest. You hunger and thirst for a lot of things. Food, drink, sleep, money, things, 
comfort, pleasure, entertainment? Do you truly hunger and thirst after righteousness? Look, immediately you're going to start calling into question. I don't know if I'm saved. I don't know if I'm saved. Oh, it gets worse. Blessed are the merciful for they shall obtain mercy. Are you, do you, are you truly merciful? And then here's the one that should just destroy you. Blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. Are you, you, are you truly pure in heart? And practice, you're not. Your heart still has sin in it. You're never truly pure in heart. So then what people do is they say, well, well, you don't have to do this perfectly. And then they start trying to make all kinds of exceptions. Well, well, I mean, I mean, you know, if you, it'll, it'll be the general direction in your life. Well, that's a cop out. Either these are the qualities that prove you're saved. It's not, you can't say these are the qualities that prove you're saved. You don't have to do them perfectly. You just got to do them, what, 40%, 50%? How do you, how can an imperfect score on a test prove that you are anywhere close to passing? I mean, I mean, you know, do, do you have to get a 60%? And when I say that, people say, oh, you're just being ridiculous. No, I'm not. If this is the pr- test that proves whether I'm saved, then I need to know exactly how the test is scored and who grades the test. Do I grade the test? Do you grade the test? I know this. Every one of those beatitudes, Christ. In Christ, he hungered and thirsted after righteousness. He was pure in heart. In Christ, I all of everything the Sermon on the Mount calls for, Christ obeyed. Christ kept. Christ died for. In Christ, I'm perfectly righteous. I meet all of this. That's why when the Bible says we'll be judged according to our works, amen, we will be judged according to our works. Either my works or the works that have been imputed to my account by Christ, so therefore I can stand before God and he he will say, well done, thy good and faithful servant, because he's seeing and judging the works of his beloved son, which were perfect. If I don't have the works of Christ, then it's my, those works that are imputed to me are now declared to be my works because they're literally imputed to my account. They're accredited to my account. Or if I don't have those works imputed to, imputed to my account, then I stand before God with my works alone, which will be not sufficient. This goes with the idea that if you are a born again believer, you're going, this describes you. Well, you just look at the church. Look at Christianity. Look at news story, news story, church splits, failure, moral failure, sin, sexual abuse, domestic disputes, uh, domestic abuse, divorce, child molestation. I mean, the church is just, look at 1 Corinthians 3. They they weren't demonstrating anything from the Sermon on the Mount. In fact, I think they had the Sermon on the Mount, like we're going to do everything opposite to the Sermon on the Mount. There was fighting and bickering and division. They were carnal. They were fleshly. They were ungodly. I think the Sermon on the Mount gives us, this is how I see it. God gives us his law in the Old Testament, obviously. The Sermon on the Mount is really a commentary, an explanation of the true meaning of the law, that the law goes beyond just the external to the internal. And by the time you get to the ser- done with the Sermon on the Mount, your conclusion should be, woe is me, I am undone, I'm an unclean man in a world of unclean people, my, lip, my lips are unclean, my hands are unclean, my eyes are unclean, my feet are unclean, everything about me is unclean, woe is me, I am undone. My only hope is in a righteousness that can fulfill this sermon 
And the only one who can fulfill the sermon is the one who preached it. The Sermon on the Mount is an ex, is an ex, is a commentary of the law that shows us the true nature of ourselves and shows us that we stand condemned. Now, yes, once we have that imputed righteousness, then we, I do believe God's law then serves as a guide for what we should strive to do and strive to be. We should, by no means should we say, well, I've got the imputed righteousness, now I can just do whatever I want. God forbid. But because I've been saved by grace, because of the mercies of God, I should be motivated by that mercy, motivated by that grace, motivated by the fact that I have been given a perfect righteousness and imputed righteousness because of Christ by faith alone, that I should strive to live out practically what is true positionally. But my practice cannot determine my salvation or prove my salvation because my salvation is determined by a perfect righteousness that was imputed to me. Now, I know some people are going to call that easy believism. They're going to call, they're going to condemn it all day long. But you go with your, your view that this is a test. You have to start convincing yourself you're passing it and you're lying to yourself. I'm telling you, you're lying to yourself. You don't pass the test. No one passed the test. We're all condemned. There you go. Now, I would challenge you, download the Bible study guide in the Sermon on the Mount. Read it all. Read everything they have to say. That, I got you all the way down to where they start looking at Matthew 5, 1 through 12. I got you through all the introductory material. But look at it. Now, we, we, again, we, we did an entire study on the Sermon on the Mount. Um, we, we, we kept listening to sermons that kind of put, that put forth this very same idea that, hey, how do you know you truly repented? Do you keep the Sermon on the Mount? How do you know you're saved? You keep the Sermon on the Mount. And it's like, do you, do you actually read the Sermon on the Mount? Do you realize how common the people in the church break the Sermon on the Mount? Do you realize that? I mean, people have a hard enough. I mean, we, we break the Ten Commandments all the time, whether in thought, word, or deed. And the Sermon on the Mount goes well beyond the external nature of the Ten Commandments and shows you what's really, that we are condemned even by what's going on in our hearts and our attitudes and our motives. By the time you get done with the Sermon on the Mount, you should be ripping your shirt, throwing ashes on your Head, putting on sackcloth, falling on your face, saying, woe is me, woe is me, I'm undone, I'm undone, I'm undone. I cannot meet your righteous demands. And then God's like, yes, that's true. You cannot meet my righteous demands, but my son did and can. And by faith, his perfect obedience, passive and active obedience is imputed to you and your salvation is safe and secure and the imputed righteousness your practical righteousness cannot prove the existence of an imputed righteousness because the imputed righteousness by nature doesn't change you. It declares you to be righteous even though you're not. So then you have to turn into a believing in an infused righteousness, which is what the entire Protestant Reformation refuted and was against. Read the London Baptist Confession of Faith or the Westminster Confession of Faith. There you go. I think I think the I think the Sermon on the Mount requires an understanding of law and gospel. Is what I think it requires. I just thought it was interesting that I got that was sent to me today. There you have it. And again, 
I, I, I'll just say this because we're, I'm at 55 minutes. Download the G3 app. There's lots of great things they do, lots of great content. I'm just opposed to the, uh, the conference industrial complex. I'm just, I just, I'm tired of people charging people to hear the word of God preached. I'm tired of it. And may, maybe that's my own personal bias. But I, I'm tired of being told that they're there to help the church for the low, low price of, you know, 280-something dollars. I'm tired of hearing that. Tired of hearing that. Uh, look, I watched, I'll, I'll, I'll just, I'll end with this. Now, sadly, this ministry fell completely and utterly apart because the person lost his ever-living mind. But I remember way back, 1990, I think it was 1990, yeah, August of 1990, I believe, I was on a Greyhound bus. And I was going to my first duty station Omaha, Nebraska, Offutt Air Force Base, which is actually located in Bellevue, Nebraska. That was my first duty assignment in the United States Air Force. I had to ride a Greyhound bus there. It took me like two days to get there. And the bus, sto- the bus stopped in downtown Omaha, Nebraska, and I get off the bus. And I was thinking Nebraska was going to be cold, but it was August and it felt like it was 3,000 degrees, okay? I was like, what happened? Okay, I didn't know much about Nebraska. I just thought it was going to be cold. It was hot. And I remember that my bus ride there, I kept praying, let my sponsor, my sponsor, let my sponsor, because in the military, when you go to a new, especially when you go to your first duty assignment, they assign you a sponsor to help you get situated, help you get everything that you need to get ready, you know, to, to now start your career in the United States military. You've gone to basic training, you've gone to your tech, technical school, now this is your first duty assignment. And I kept praying that my sponsor would be a Christian. My sponsor would be a Christian. My sponsor would be a Christian because, you know, I wanted to start off with, you know, at least some Christian there to, to, you know, to, to be encouraging and, and help me, you know, spiritually. So I, I get out off the bus, get my bags, and I get into the car of my sponsor. And immediately he turns on the radio and there's like this hymn playing. And I'm like, oh, wow. And they play that. I'm like, what is this radio station? It's conservative hymns. And I'm like, what is this? He's like, this is family radio. And I'm like, wow, this is awesome, right? So we started talking. He was a Christian. And that's when I was introduced to family radio. And I started listening to family radio hour after hour after hour. I would record the teaching on family radio. And family radio, the president at that time was Harold Camping. Now, sadly, he he goes crazy and starts predicting that the world's going to end in 1994. But family radio. Now, this is what they did. Family Radio, first of all, they sent out so much material. They sent out books, devotional guides, study guides, all absolutely free. Not only that, they had the Family Radio School of the Bible where you could enroll and receive an associate's degree. I think in I think it was in uh, biblical studies. Um, I enrolled in the school. Guess what they charged? Absolutely nothing. It was free. And guess what they sent you? They sent you the textbook. They sent you the workbooks. They sent you all of the teaching on cassette, all absolutely free. They did not charge for one thing. Everything was free. They said they were there to minister the way they said, we have freely received, we freely give. And they were there trying to educate, disciple every every month. Uh, yes, uh, he did apologize before he died. Yes. Uh, Harold Camping was, uh, man, I listened to so many hours of his teaching. You don't even know how many hours. Read every one of his books. 
and listen to him night after night on, on family radio. I mean, it, it was such a massive influence in my life. But what I loved about the ministry was how much they freely get every month. You called 1-800, was it 543-1495? I think I still remember the phone number. And you just called. It was automated. You just put wh- whatever you wanted to get. It was books, whatever, and they would send it directly to your house. Absolutely free. Absolutely free. Absolutely free. I got book after book after book after book. I went to school of the Bible. They sent me... Uh, they sent me uh, books on Greek, on Hebrew. I mean, you just name it. It was like, there was like a full-blown, you know, associates course, all for free. So don't tell me ministries can't do things for free. Again, I went to a conference in Kansas City when I lived in Nebraska, absolutely free. And they fed you lunch and it was held inside a church. I, I volunteered multiple times and and this is going into the world of contemporary Christian music, for Carmen. Carmen, all of his concerts were free. Now, I don't agree with his theology, and we could get into a whole discussion about his musical ability, but that's a whole whole other thing. But he did a concert in Texas Stadium at the time, before AT&T Stadium was built, Uh, the original Texas Stadium with the hole in the roof for the Cowboys because it was God's favorite team, all of that, okay, free, so he was going around doing concerts for free. So there was many ministries that found a way to minister to people. And then there was some, so when I am opposed to the conference thing, look, I, I, I'm not throwing a complete, like I condemn everything about these ministries and they can never bless anyone. I just think that they get caught up into this. It becomes a business. And again, like I could never go to a G3 conference. Never. I couldn't afford that. No way. And so there you go. Yeah, yes. Uh, this person said, Carmen was a staple of my childhood. I think a lot of people who were young Christians at the time, Carmen was a staple of a lot of our childhoods. And yeah, um, I, I hate the fact that his theology was so messed up at times, but I, I respect the fact that he didn't want to charge people money. I, I, I got nothing but respect for that. But there you have it. There's the study guide for G3. Download it, Sermon on the Mount. And my view is Sermon on the Mount is, is a, basically a commentary, an explanation of the law. Its primary purpose is to condemn and drive us to Christ. Christ is the only one who fulfilled it in him. I fulfill every part of the Sermon on the Mount. I am saved by an imputed righteousness, not an infused righteousness. I, my practical righteousness does not prove the, that I have received an imputed righteousness, and it could never be used as proof. The, because I've received an imputed righteousness by grace, God's mercy and grace should motivate me to do my best to try to live as close as I can to the Sermon on the Mount, not in order to prove that I'm saved, but just because of I'm motivated by grace I'm motivated because of God's mercy and God's grace. I should be motivated by love uh, to try to live out what God calls me to live out. There you go. All right, I'll stop right there. You can email me, newsif at yahoo.com, newsif at yahoo.com. All right, we'll be back. I got to turn the the, uh, air conditioning on up here. So I'm going to have to take a little bit of a break because if you don't realize it today, right here in West Texas, it is, I think, currently... I think it's almost 100 degrees right now. I think it's almost 100 degrees. Let me see here. Yeah, it's 98 degrees right now. It's almost 100 degrees outside. And I feel like it's 500 degrees right here in this upstairs bedroom when I turn the air conditioning unit off. So I'm going to turn that back on, let the room cool off a little bit, and we'll try to do some more 
live broadcasting, uh, well, from two floor, two stories above a street in Abilene, Texas. And hopefully whatever we do this uh, evening will be beneficial. Thanks for listening. God bless.